It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has had his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Thank you, Hannah. How many of you have ever wanted to belong to a group of people and that group of people ended up protecting you? It hurts. It feels unfair. Oftentimes, it's unloving when it happens. Now, we're here, we're gathered as a church, and the church is the most amazing group of people in the whole world to belong to. And it's not because we're so special. Me, you guys, are, we're pretty broken, messed up people. So it's not us that makes the church special to belong to. It's that Jesus died for us, the Father adopted us, and the Holy Spirit has brought us together into a family that gets to be together forever. So it makes it beautiful to be a part of a church. So should the church ever exclude someone? Is that ever a loving thing for the church to do? What if I told you that the Bible says that in some situations, the most loving thing for the church to do is to exclude someone from the church? So we're going to see this evening in our passage. 1 Corinthians 5 is the longest passage in the Bible on church discipline. So let's turn our eyes to this passage and see what the Lord has to teach us about how we should handle some situations and what love looks like in some situations. Verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, 
So immediately we're greeted in this chapter with an appalling situation. There's a man who's probably having a relationship with his stepmother, which is just unthinkable. Paul says it's unthinkable in the world. How much more in the church? You know, we often think, don't we, about the early church and think, well, man, that must have been just a, a perfect place. And it would be perfect to belong to the early church where nothing went wrong. And as you read the letter to the Corinthians, you realize that that's actually really far from the case. That there is a lot of brokenness in the early church. Just as there's a lot of brokenness now. And as much as we'd like not to believe it, horrible things happen in the church from professing believers. Professing believers from the pews fall. Church leaders fall. We grieve just another prominent church leader falling just a few weeks ago. And first we should see that this is nothing new, that appalling things would happen in the church. This is the way it's been ever since the church was founded, because the devil is out to destroy the church, and he gets into people's hearts and brings about these situations. And the beautiful thing about this letter in this chapter is that God has a plan for this. God has a plan to deal with sins in the church. God has a plan to bring out restoration and life, even when sins bring death and destruction. So this man, this sin he committed, brought all kinds of destruction. Broke his family, brought shame to his church and his Lord, put his soul in jeopardy. If anyone should have been out and without a chance, it was this guy. And what we're going to see in this chapter is God's plan to address this situation, to restore this situation, to restore his church and to restore this man. And so while the subject matter of this chapter is heavy, the results are good and encouraging and hopeful. So let's keep moving through this chapter, verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So apparently what happened is that the Corinthian culture, that Corinth is the Roman city that this church is in that Paul writes this letter to, apparently they had a culture that's pretty similar to our own in Minneapolis in 2020. They had a culture of God, God created marriage between a man and a woman. It's a beautiful picture. And when our hearts are broken by sin, people turn to other relationships that aren't God's plan and they bring death and destruction. And our culture, darkened and not knowing God, celebrates those things. And apparently, in Corinth, they had a similar culture of celebrating these things. And that culture got them into the church, and the church was celebrating. Look how tolerant we are. Look how accepting we are. This lifestyle that should not even be tolerated. Look how accepting we are of this man. And Paul's response is, that's wrong. That's wrong. Instead, you should be mourning about this. You should be sorrowful about this. Mourn is a verb that is used in the Bible for mourning at someone's funeral when they have died. When sin destroys a fellow brother and sister in Christ, 
We mourn for them like we would mourn at a funeral. This is a good command from Paul. He does not say hate his brother. He does not say despise him. He does not say ignore him. He says mourn for him. Friends, when sin creeps up in the church and takes hold of other people in the church, our response should be to mourn. To mourn and be sorrowful and sad that death and destruction has gotten a foothold in a place that is supposed to be about life. And then Paul says something. Let him who has done this be removed from you. Really, from the church? Remove someone from the church? Sounds like something in our culture in 2020 we should never do. And yet Paul says this is exactly the most loving thing that you should do in this situation. When someone has committed a sin that's so grievous that it shows that they're not actually following Jesus, shows that while their mouth may confess Christ as Lord, their heart denies him, the most loving thing to do in this situation is to remove this person from the church. I find it astonishing that Paul doesn't say, I remove this person. You see that? Paul's an apostle in the early church. Paul has special authority. And yet he doesn't say, I remove this person. He leaves it to the church to remove this person. What he's showing, friends, is that you have a special authority as members of a church. You have a special authority to remove members from the church whose sins show that their confession in Christ is not authentic confession and that they actually still need to meet Jesus and come to him. Paul then says in verse 3, For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. What Paul is saying is that this is so clear. Even though I'm not there, I can judge this situation and say this person should be removed. It's so clear that they've violated and sinned against the Lord in such a way that they should be removed. That's why I think it means that when he says, I'm there in spirit, that this is so clear to me, it's as if I was there. And I pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Paul doesn't act on a hunch. He doesn't read people's hearts. He commands them to respond this way in the face of clear sin. Outward, damaging to other people, observable. We should generally have a very hopeful demeanor towards one another and the Spirit's work. We're not supposed to approach one another with skepticism. We're not supposed to be sin detectives trying to find out who we can get in trouble. We're supposed to have an optimistic outlook at the Spirit's work in our brother and sister. I'm optimistic right now as I'm looking at you. I hope and pray that we don't have to apply this text ever. But yet, when a situation becomes so dire and so drastic, that it's clear and you have to bury your head in the sand to avoid it, and the judgment is clear, then God places a responsibility on his church to act and to remove people who are in unrepentant sin. 
He says in verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, Paul talks about the church assembling for this judgment. Notice also he does not say pastors. He says the church, when the church assembles. His authority is for the people who are sitting in the pews. This is not an authority that pastors have. This is not an authority that any one person has. This is an authority the church has gathered under the power of the Holy Spirit. The church must act in this way in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means that we call on him and depend on him for wisdom when we discipline him. It also means that we never act apart from this book. Never act apart from God's words. This is the standard by which we judge sin and righteousness. It's not my own authority. It's not your authority. When we, when we obey these texts and put them into place, it's in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that it's in his power that we discipline I just want you to sense that this is a weighty responsibility of the church. This is a weighty responsibility that God has given to the church. To excommunicate from someone from the church is to be an instrument of Jesus' power. Jesus is exercising his power through the church when we remove someone from the church. And so while it's sad, and while we should weep and grieve, it is good because we are being the Lord's instrument and service to do his work. Verse 5 says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay. This is a hard verse. So the church is the realm of Jesus Christ. The world is the realm of Satan. If you remember your life in the world, apart from the church, it is not pleasant. One of the sweetest blessings of knowing Jesus Christ is getting to be a part of his community and of his family. And when you deny Jesus and the church removes you from the church, that's what it means to be handed over to Satan. You go back to the old realm where Satan primarily influences things. And the reason you go to this place is so that you might feel the effects of your sin. One of the effects of your salvation are the renewed relationships with your brothers and sisters around you. One of the effects of denying the Lord is that you would return to the old community you were a part of without the same kinds of relationships with your brothers and sisters. And that this would remind you of what you're doing. This would remind you of what you're sacrificing. And then he says for this destruction of the flesh. I think the word flesh, when Paul uses it, often refers to his sinful nature. He opposes, he just opposes the flesh and the spirit. So what Paul is saying is that I want this man to be returned to his life outside of the church so that his sinful nature that is killing him might be destroyed. 
I want to kill the thing that is killing this person so that he can live. He wants to be killing sin, lest he be killing this man. These words are direct, but you must see that underneath that is pure love. Pure love. To separate someone from what's separating them from Jesus. So while it feels like this does not feel like love, we must remember that God is calling us to love people in this way in certain situations. And I think this purpose right here is my favorite part of this whole passage. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Church discipline is about saving sinners. Church discipline is a temporary judgment meant to bring about an eternal salvation. Church discipline is not final. It's never final. It's an anticipation of judgment so that someone can escape that judgment. It's to make them feel what's coming so that they can escape what's coming by returning to Christ. If anyone here is wondering, have I screwed up too bad to be part of the church? Absolutely not. This is not a final judgment. It's a temporary one meant to bring about restoration. That's actually my main point this evening. Church discipline is meant to restore sinners, not destroy sinners. And that's all our heart is in church discipline, is to restore sinners who have strayed from the Lord Jesus. He goes on in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Now he switches to an analogy of baking bread. And when you bake bread, you put yeast or leaven in it, and it spreads throughout the bread and causes it to rise. And what this is, is a picture of what happens when sin is left unaddressed in the church. So in verse 5, we have God's concern for the sinner. In verse 6, we have God's concern for the church. Because often what happens when sin is left unaddressed and unaccounted for and undisciplined in the church is that it doesn't actually get snuffed out. It spreads to other people. I was talking around a campfire a few nights ago with some guys I used to go to high school with. And one of the guys at the campfire shared with me about how drugs and all sorts of terrible decisions he made brought such pain and destruction and misery to his life. And one of the things he said just shocked me. What he said to me was, man, I never, I never had any of this stuff in my life until I went to youth group. When I went to youth group, people introduced me to drugs. People introduced me to substances. People introduced me to this lifestyle. And so he wasn't actually encountering this life outside of the church, but when he came in the church, he was exposed to it. And what we're doing when we discipline is to protect our brother and sister from falling into the same trap of sin that someone else has fallen into. To discipline is not only to love the person who is being destroyed by their sin, it's to protect and care for the brother or sister sitting beside you in the pew so that they're not destroyed as well. It's to care for them so that the leaven does not spread through the church. The sin does not spread through the church and infect it. Paul then says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, 
as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Paul says that we're supposed to clean out the old leaven. What we're supposed to do is remove from the church those who do not actually know Jesus, so that we might be a pure church, a pure bride for Jesus. As you preach the Bible, how many of you heard a preacher say, become what you already are? I think a lot of you have. And what that means is that you as a person who are forgiven of your sins start to become like someone who Jesus already sees you as. He already sees you as forgiven. He already sees you as sinless. Start to act sinless. Become what you already are. This is that same line of thinking applied to the whole church. See, Jesus didn't just die and come to rescue individuals. He came to rescue a pure bride, a pure church, a holy people. And he wants to keep this people holy. He wants to keep this people pure. He wants us to be what we already are as he, as he sees us. And so when we remove someone to purify the church, we're helping it become what God has designed it to be. We're helping it be what he already sees it to be. If we grasp Jesus' love for the church, we would understand how important this is. Husbands, think about your love for your wife, your love for her purity, your love for her cleanness, your love for her pure devotion to you. That's Christ's heart for us, that we would be as pure, as holy, as devoted to him, having no other Lord. And so when someone else has another Lord, we tell them you're not part of the church right now until Christ is your Lord. And then you'll be with us again. Sorry, this microphone. Paul says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. This is the reason why we want to have a new one. Jesus went to the ultimate lengths to purify us. He went to the ultimate length to purify us. He gave everything to purify us. If you're trusting in him today, and you don't feel pure, you are pure. You are pure. He has made you pure. He's taken away your shame. He has taken away your guilt. He has taken away your past. As long as you're surrendered and trusting in him, there is no sin that he cannot purify you from. And what's more is he's purified all of us. On your own, we are not a pure group. We are an impure group. And because of Jesus right now, this is a pure group of people. Amen. This is pure in his sight. This is special. This is holy. This is valuable to Jesus. And he sees us as pure because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. As you read this passage, you see a lot of language about unleavened bread and a Passover lamb. It brings us back to in the Old Testament to the story of the Passover. In the Passover, God's people were in Egypt, and God sent his angel of death to Egypt. And those of his people who sacrificed the lamb and put the blood on their doorposts, he passed over and didn't judge them. He, he forgave them. He gave them life. And then he had them eat a meal of unleavened bread where they would celebrate and come together and rejoice in the ways that God had helped them and saved them from their sin. 
And now we see this in verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So us, likewise, like this nation in the Old Testament, have been forgiven of our sins. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And as a result, we begin to feast. Paul is describing life together here as a feast, a celebration we have with one another. When we worship Jesus together, when we eat the supper together, we are feasting together, enjoying the reality that we've been saved from our sin, separated from death, and will be with him forever. I've had some sweet, sweet memories at All People's Church. And I know so many of you have as well. Times of praying with you, crying with you, worshiping with you, sharing Christ with you. Like being part of this church is the best part of my life. Nothing else is close to this. Why? Why is that? Because we're people who have the Holy Spirit in us. We've been saved, and now our life together is a celebration and an enjoyment of what Christ has already accomplished for us. Being a part of a church should be like a celebration together. And it only works. Life is only like that. If the church is filled with people who trust to know Jesus, if we let sin spread in the church, and people who don't know Christ are in the church, this place will be nothing different from the world. This will be nothing like any other groups you could belong to. But since Christ has made a pure church of pure people who follow Jesus, now, friends, we get to have exceptional times of worship together, exceptional times of encouraging each other, exceptional times of loving each other. And it's from sincerity and truth. We used to have malice and envy in our hearts. Now we have sincerity and truth in our hearts. And when we encourage one another and spend time with each other, it's something special. This is special. Now Paul, in verse 9, is going to correct a misunderstanding. This is a big misunderstanding that you can have. So let's, let's not make a mistake here. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all. Meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. So apparently Paul wrote a letter before 1 Corinthians. And that letter to me said, stop associating with the sexually immoral person. And one mistake you can make is to mean, well, that means I shouldn't associate with anyone who's sexually immoral. I shouldn't associate with anyone who's a sinner. I shouldn't associate with my neighbor. I shouldn't associate with my family member. I shouldn't associate with my coworkers. I shouldn't associate with my friends. I should start to remove myself from the sinful world to keep myself pure. And that's a mistake many Christians have made. This is not at all what this passage is about. We must not separate ourselves from sinners who are around us. We understand that the world is an impure place. And we have a Savior who can protect us and who can make the impure pure. He can make the sexually immoral pure. He can make any sinner clean. And Jesus showed that us that by his lifestyle, didn't he? 
Which sinner did he hesitate to spend time with? Nobody. He went and he feasted with people who embarrassed other people that he feasted with them. Oh, I long to be accused of being a friend of sinners. And I long for you to be accused of being a friend of sinners. Never mistake the call to be holy in the church with a call to refuse to spend time with your unbelieving neighbors. Paul, the apostle who wrote this letter, spent all kinds of time with unclean, impure people and brought them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants to use you to do the exact same thing. And he wants you to protect the pure church so that when you bring them into that church, they can see what Jesus is like. That's what he's about here. That's what he's doing. Verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even eat with such a one. So there's a big distinction here. If someone is living a lifestyle of sin yet not claiming a relationship with the Lord, pursue them as Christ pursued you. If someone is in the church and professing to know Christ and yet is living in outrageous or unrepentant sin, then the answer is to exclude them. Now you might ask a question here, wait a second, Ross, this sounds different than what you taught us about Matthew 18. This sounds different from what you taught, taught us in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 has four steps for removing a sinner. This text needs out one. And the difference is that in Matthew 18, it's a serious sin, but it's a sin that's conceivable a Christian would commit. So if one of you guys told me, hey, I got drunk last night, I wouldn't be, I would be sad, but I wouldn't think, is this person a follower of Jesus? No, I think it's time to repent and it's time to turn from that. And as you repent and turn from that, you'd be led back into fellowship with Christ and we continue to follow him together. It's only if you refuse, 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 refuse to turn that church discipline would ever come. In this case, in this passage, it's a situation so severe that when I hear it, I get, what? I, I, I just don't think that you're a follower of Jesus. An example would be like someone who had a lot of affairs and just lied about it. And once again, the answer is not. You cannot be a Christian. The answer is, we're going to remove you from the church first, and then we're going to invite you to repentance to come back to Christ. We're going to invite you to return to him. So that's what's going on in these texts. So Paul's saying that in these situations, when someone is walking in these ways, I want to ask you not to associate with them. So you've got to ask, what does it mean not to associate with someone? I don't think it means shun them. I don't think it means ignore them. If you turn back to verse 5, it says that the whole point of this is that their spirit will be saved. How are you going to save anyone if you're not talking with them? How are you going to lead anyone to Christ if you're not talking to them? That is not the point. The point is, is that you stop interacting with them as if they were a Christian. So you spend time with them. But there's a sense of sadness, a sense of inviting them back to Jesus, 
a sense of your words and actions are not conveying to them a false reality that they are a Christian when in fact they are not. That would not be loving. To give someone the sense that they're a Christian when they are in fact not. Paul then says, not even eat with such a one. And as we look in the letter of 1 Corinthians, what we find is that eating with someone is a reference often to the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to read to you right now from chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So the most tangible effect of being removed from the church is not that you're welcome to, not welcome here. You're welcome here. All sinners are welcome here. Every single one is welcome in this room. But when we eat the bread and drink the juice together, until you have turned from your sin and come back to Christ, please don't eat this meal. It will give you and us a false impression that you belong to Jesus when you do not in fact belong to him. So I don't want us to get a wrong impression that we should completely cut off and stop communicating with someone who is disciplined. But simply that we stop acting and doing things that would create the false impression that they're a Christian when they're not yet. But we believe they will be and hope that they will be and fight that they will be. And something that struck me as I was reading these two ways I interact with people, your sinful neighbors who are not yet Christians and, your and someone who's professing Christ but is not yet a Christian, the way that you're supposed to interact with them is a way that creates life. You're trying to create life for both of them. When you spend time with your neighbor and love them like Jesus loved them and tell them about how he died for them, you're trying to bring this person to have life with you. And when you are sorrowful around someone who has denied the Lord by their lifestyle, and you say, come back to Christ, come back to Christ, we want you back. We don't want you to be not a part of us. All we want is to have you back. Then you are inviting that person to come have the life that you have. And what's beautiful, what's just beautiful, church, as you turn 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians, and you read that letter, Paul's talking about restoring a, a sinner to their body, a repenting sinner to their body. Apparently, this man who had done this terrible thing was being restored to the Corinthian church. God had done the work through this process that he had designed. And while painful, while hurtful, it's in 2 Corinthians 7 if you want to read it sometime, while sorrowful at the time. Friends, I believe we'll get to see this man in heaven because of church discipline. Church discipline, family, is a means of grace. It is a hard means of grace. It is a sorrowful means of grace. But it is a means of grace. And if we do this well and faithfully, I believe people will be in heaven who otherwise wouldn't have. So may we reject our pride. May we reject any sense that we're better than anyone and just discipline with humility and love and concern for other people's souls. I want to address each of you more directly now. 
the apostle brings up some sins for us to consider. I just want you to ask yourself, are you letting these sins have a foothold in your life? Because I promise you right now, I promise you that this man didn't wake up one morning and commit this atrocious sin. He compromised in little ways. And little compromises lead to big compromises. And you might think you're controlling your sin right now, but one morning you'll wake up and it will control you. And you'll wonder how things got so out of control and why you can't stop it. And since I want more than anything to avoid getting here to 1 Corinthians 5 with anyone, I want to plead with you this evening to cut your sin off right now while it's still small before it gets big. So are you compromising with sexual immorality in your actions or your thoughts? And friends, I'm asking myself these questions because I am making compromises in my life that I need to stop. I have sin that I need to stop. Are you indulging in a greedy heart? With money, food, or drink, or your time? Are you making peace with your idolatry? Are you looking to something as more important and beautiful and peace-producing than Jesus in your life? Are you a reviler? That means are you verbally abusive to other people? There are times where you verbally abuse people in your family or your friends. The Lord asks you to turn from that. Are you a drunkard? Do you regularly use alcohol and substances to put yourself in an altered state of conscience? Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you a swindler? Are you using dishonest means to make money? easy to make little compromises, to make more money. But little compromises can have big costs. And then Paul is clear in verse 12. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Paul affirms what he's been affirming before. We don't have authority to judge those outside of the church. He's given us the authority to judge those among us. And how sad that the church has the opposite reputation. That we're known as hypocrites who let things go within the church while we slam and condemn our neighbors. How do we not let the stereotype be true? We practice church discipline well. We make sure that we're not hypocrites, that we are true, obedient followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we recognize that there's a difference between the church and the world. And if someone is still in the world, it is not our responsibility to judge them. It's our responsibility to love them and invite them to come join the church. So let's keep our distinctions clear. And let's not be known as hypocrites who judge others, but be known as sincere followers of Christ who carefully manage and tend to the life of the church. I preached a couple weeks ago about how we're exiles and how we have no authority in the world outside of the church. But we do have an authority here, and we have to steward that and exercise that well. And this is one way that we do that. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Purge the evil person from among you is a reference to Deuteronomy. Moses uses that phrase seven times in Deuteronomy. And it refers to putting someone to death 
in the old covenant in order to purify the community. And what struck me is the age of mercy we are living in. The old covenant, the old testament, is mercy. Okay? It's mercy. Israel did not deserve to be rescued from Egypt. They did not deserve to be in a relationship with God. It's mercy. But we live in a new covenant now with more mercy than the old covenant. Purge the evil person from among you in the old covenant was a final condemnation on this person. In the new covenant, purge the evil person from among you is a temporary judgment meant to bring eternal life. God is wooing his people back to him. And he's using warnings in order to create life. And all this mercy is only ours because Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so if you are here today, and you're a visitor to the church, you're not in the church yet, and you have not followed Jesus yet, I invite you to do that. The same mercy I'm talking about for this person is for you. God wants to forgive you of your sins. And I just plead with you not to leave this room without receiving that mercy. There's nothing sweeter in the world than receiving mercy. Amen? Amen. Nothing sweeter in the world. And this is a somber passage, but at the bottom of it is mercy. There is nothing in this passage about final judgment. This is all about mercy. And so please, if you do not know Jesus yet, please come to him. And if you're in the church and you're nurturing secret sin, there's mercy for you. There's mercy for you. God's ready to receive you back. So let someone know. Don't leave this room without letting someone know. God loves you. We love you. And all of us understand that we live in a fallen world. And that all of us need the mercy of Jesus to live. Church, let's pray. Father, this is a weighty passage. But I am just blown away by your loving heart throughout it. And about how your intention is never destruction. And I just ask that you give me and give our whole church this heart. To love sinners the way you love sinners. To be honest with sin. Honest about its consequences. Honest about the church. And yet also extend mercy as we have received mercy. Please, God, make us a merciful people like we have received mercy. Help us to remember that we're in the world and interact with our neighbors as Jesus interacted with the people around him. And I pray for anyone who's already been removed from the church that you produce repentance in them and bring them back to us. We look forward to the day we get to restore them like you restored this man. Thank you that you are a God who restores sinners and does not abandon them. We praise you for that in Jesus' name.